This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by the all-new 2021 Ford Bronco Sport. A smart and rugged 4x4 SUV engineered for your outdoor lifestyle. Inside the Bronco Sport are purpose-built features from an especially committed team. I would probably say I was four or something when I designed my first car officially. <laughs> officially, I like that. That's interior design manager Scott Anderson, who was born and raised in Dearborn, Michigan, home of the Ford Motor Company. As a kid from Dearborn, right, it's like one of your big biggest dreams would be to work on something like a Bronco. Scott's team was on a mission to craft an SUV that made it easier for people to enjoy their time outside. This had them developing features like two adjustable floodlights in the liftgate. So let's say you're pulling into a campsite, sun's going down, you want to set up camp. The lamps will shine 30 feet behind the vehicle and a few feet into the cargo area. So you can sort of lay out your tent, your cooking surfaces, get your fire started in a space where you can see what you're doing. Then there's the available five-way configurable rear cargo management system. You heard from a lot of people, geez, I got like all these wet snowboard boots and I got my sleeping bag, my backpacks, the dirty and wet stuff, need to stay separated from the dry stuff. The Clever system lets you create dividers and shelves for your gear. And when you get to base camp, it becomes a fold-out table. We thought it would be nice to be able to give people a place to have a clean, dry spot to fix something like their lantern or cooking stove. All these things are about promising people the ability to, to be adventure ready at the drop of a hat. Learn more about the all-new Bronco Sport at Ford.com slash Bronco. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. Don't you ever want to do one of those things where, you know, you you think, you know, even if you don't know for sure no one's done it, you're pretty sure very few people have actually attempted it. And that's how it started. It, it started kind of as a bit of a lark and a bit of an adventure, and it, it developed into full-blown expedition. I do know what it's like to want to do something that few people have ever done. But I've never actually pulled it off, which makes me like everyone else out there who dreams big but adventures small. Biologist M. Sanjan, on the other hand, is the type of guy who goes for it, even if he sometimes sounds like he's wearing a suit. So my name is uh, M. Sanjan. I just usually use one name, Sanjan. Uh, I'm the... Sorry, let me start again. My name is, my name is Sanjan. Uh, I am the CEO of Conservation International. Sanjan does wear a suit on occasion, as CEOs are known to do. If you're not familiar with Conservation International, or CI, as it's often called, it's a highly regarded environmental nonprofit based in the United States. Since its founding in 1987, CI has worked with partners to help protect over 2.3 million square miles of land and sea across more than 70 countries. Under Sanjan's leadership, the organization has advocated for an approach to conservation that upends long-held beliefs of why and how we save natural places. It's a fundamental shift that puts human well-being at the forefront and that depends on environmentalists learning to listen to the communities of people whose lands and waters they are trying to protect. For Sanjan, getting to this point has been a long journey, one that began during his childhood in Sri Lanka and Africa 
and the Today has him hosting natural history documentaries on television, including Life at the Waterhole, which premieres on PBS on May 19th. Along the way, he's embarked on a series of adventures that have challenged some of his deepest held principles and spurred him to look at our relationship to the planet and to each other in a new way. For this episode of our Wildfile series, we're going to relive some big moments from Sanjan's journey, beginning with that lark of an adventure, which took place about 15 years ago in the Namib Desert on the western coast of Namibia. So this is one of the oldest and driest deserts on the planet. There are many years when you don't have a single drop of water. And I had this idea that we ought to walk across it to see what was really in the middle of it. Are rhinos going into the deep desert? Are elephants present there? Are there cats out there? You know, what might be out there? This was back when Sanjan was a lead scientist with the Nature Conservancy, working in Namibia on the periphery of the Great Desert. The route he had in mind would take a group of about 10, over 190 miles through mostly uninhabited landscape, passing through two large national parks. And the idea was to cross the desert and end up at the sea. And we had a small team of scientists and we had four African indigenous rangers with us who had camels with them, which carried our water and our baggage and our kit. They, they were not camels made for riding, they were camels made for transportation. Did you ever find yourself questioning, like, wait, this was a bad idea to walk across here? Like, what were we thinking? Yes, yes. Like, you know, before we got started, one of the camels got eaten by a lion. Quite literally, we lost a camel before we actually even got going. You know, on day two, I was about, like, ready to quit and die because it was just much harder than I thought it would be. Some days we were doing like 30 kilometers on foot, right, in, in a very, very hot and dry environment. And remember, there's not like a trail. We were making our trails. We were following game trails. Obviously, we had GPS and we had maps, but nothing was a straight line. You could walk down a little canyon and find that at right at the end of it is too steep a, a cliff and you'd have to take the camels all the way back around just to get around an obstacle. But you get used to it and then there's a joy in it and there's a routine and it's amazing what you see in the middle of that desert. We did not have any idea that there would be rhinos smack in the middle of these really, really dry. When I say dry, I mean a place where there's not a single plant. It's just pebbles and, and sort of sh sand. And yet there are rhino footprints out there. We saw cheetah, we saw lion. We saw elephant. You know, there were small water holes and, and crevasses where, where water would gather and you'd find leopards there. The trek would take three weeks. During their long hours of walking, the group would often stretch out into a column with maybe a quarter mile between each member. On their final few days, they entered a section of the desert that seemed almost entirely devoid of life. Nothing. Like nothing, no shade, no tree, you know, no blade of grass, no bushes, very, very little vegetation. What you found is mostly stuff that's blown in on the wind. So we're out there and, you know, we saw this little, like some kind of shining object. And, and without anyone ordering the column to change direction, everyone sort of slightly gravitated towards this one sort of signpost in the middle of the sea of sand. 
And pretty soon, you know, 20 minutes later, we're all gathered around, like as if we're looking at an altar, but it's actually just an ostrich egg, a white shiny ostrich egg laid out there in the middle of this desert and this sandy expanse. And at this point, everyone's hallucinating a bit. We've, we've not had protein for a few days. We've, we're very much out of our comfort zone. And we start having this long, amazing conversation about how out here in the middle of nowhere, ostriches can make a living. And here's an ostrich that's laid an egg. It's not uncommon for ostriches to lay. They don't make nests. They lay it on the ground. They'll come back. They'll lay, lay more. But we don't see an ostrich in sight. That's not really surprising. It might have moved off to forage. It might have seen us and moved off. So we're looking at this egg and we're thinking we're in the middle of Skeleton Coast National Park, which is a treasured national park. And you're not supposed to touch anything or move anything or, or kill anything. And we all know that. But as we're sitting there marveling at this egg, you know, I pretty much notice on the side the four indigenous rangers that we have with us. They are like talking to each other. They use a clicking language. So it's like clicks and, and they're like clearly in very animated conversation, which is not something they, they are often uh, prone to do. They tend to be kind of strong, silent types. And a little frying pan emerges and little twig twigs and little bits of leaves are gathered and a little bit of kindling comes out of a backpack. And pretty soon you have a little frying pan like set up with a, with a little fire just about to go. And I realized what they're going to do. They're going to crack this egg and they're going to have a fantastic breakfast. We were both gathered around the same object, an egg, but it represented such vast different things to, to each of us. To us Western trained scientists, conservationists, environmentalists, this was life in the middle of a desert. This was resilience. This was a grand national park working. This was, you know, data. <laughs> to them, it was breakfast. <laughs> so we're all a bit aghast, but we're also respectful. It's no point telling people what to do in the middle of this thing. It's, you know, they are Namibians. They are indigenous peoples of the place. But they also see our reaction to this and the reaction of our awe and wonder about something so wondrous in the middle of a wilderness area. And the lead guy basically stands up and just starts moving off. And we take that as a signal and we all start moving off. And I look back and the three other rangers are still standing there. But pretty soon I see them pack up as well, you know, put their stuff back in the camels and they're off as well. And as I hit the horizon, I look back and that egg is still there, still shining. The next day we hit the coast. That's it. 21 days on the road, on foot unbelievable journey. These four indigenous guys had never seen the ocean before. So everyone stripped. We all took a dip at some level in a very cold Namibian ocean. And then we waited on the beach for a plane to land and pick us up. And sure enough, a Cessna caravan comes out of the sky. It bounces along the beach. We all pile in. You know, air conditioner comes full blast. And someone hands me this cold, cold beverage probably a Coke, and it just tasted so damn good. And then the plane takes off. And as it turns inland to, to sort of retrace the journey, I look down below me, and there are the four indigenous guides turning around, heading back, because our big adventure is over. We get to go back to a big city that night, stay in a hotel, and fly out in a few days. They have to retrace that journey on foot, right? And as we do this, 
the plane sort of erupts in conversation because we all realize that, hey, guess what? Tomorrow morning, they're going to be hitting that egg. And it's going to be really interesting to see what they do with that egg when we're not there. And we argued about this for the entire flight, I don't know, two-hour flight. And we didn't have a clear consensus. Half the people said, they're going to eat it. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. And the reason why that story really sinks with me is because you realize that when you do global conservation, nearly always, you are a stranger. You are coming into someone else's home, someone else's backyard. And... And at some point, you're going to leave. And unless it is in those people's enlightened self-interest to do whatever they're going to do, it just won't end up happening. The fact is, it's their egg, it's their land, and the decisions they make are ultimately the ones that are going to be the stickiest along the way. It's also kind of amazing that It is very, very possible that they just saw that egg and kept on walking. To this day, I don't actually know what happened. I have had the chance to meet those rangers since then. I've never actually wanted to ask them. Because to me, it will spoil some of that magic that local communities, indigenous peoples, ultimately should be the masters of their own fate and future. We'll be right back. When you stop and think about what you really want in an SUV, it's a vehicle that lets you get the most out of your adventures. For Scott Anderson and the other designers of the all-new Ford Bronco Sport, that meant crafting the interior to be the ideal mobile base camp, no matter what you like to do outside. You know, we looked at surfers in California and watched them sitting by the side of the road in their vehicle, changing out of their wetsuits, sort of like, geez, what can we do in the back of the vehicle to help these people enable that experience for them to be better? After a lot of experimenting, Scott's team came up with an answer. They create a pull bar for the rear lift gate that was engineered to fit hangers. Let's try and see if we can make this thing the right size to be able to hang a hanger, which allow people to put a wetsuit on it and dry it off. And it sounds really mundane, but most bars that close the gates in most vehicles right now are too small to put a hanger through. Step inside a Bronco Sport, and you'll find all kinds of smart and unexpected features, like available storage under the second row seats, and even a built-in bottle opener in the cargo area. This is what you get when you ask your customers what they really need, and then listen to them. Okay, I want a carabiner hook here, and I want to put some rubber mats here. All these little human-centered design exercises gave us all these really fruitful ideas for making little tiny features that amounted to big benefits for our particular customer. Learn more about the all-new Ford Bronco Sport at Ford.com Bronco. Many years before he crossed the Namib Desert, M. Sanjan set out on what might be considered an even bolder adventure. He left his home in the African nation of Sierra Leone to go to college at the University of Oregon. I came to the United States following my passion for Bruce Springsteen, (laughs) whose album just somehow resonated with me as I was a kid growing up in Africa. And I thought, whatever this music is, I want to go to that country and study there. In the early 1990s, 
Sanjan headed to UC Santa Cruz to earn his PhD and to study under Michael Soule, who is often called the father of conservation biology. Sanjan had a grandiose vision for his future as a scientist. I had the entire package built in my mind, the khakis, the Swarovski binoculars, the gin and tonics under the tree in, you know, in Africa. And what I was going to do was study cheetahs in Namibia. And unfortunately, my plans got unbelievably railroaded. I was basically getting my visa to go to Namibia, and I got told that my project got cancelled. It wasn't Sanjan's fault. For complicated reasons, the funding for the cheetah study fell through. This was late in his tenure as a PhD candidate, so he needed to find a replacement project fast. And I locked into studying gophers, which are a common pest animal found all over California. If you want to know what a gopher is, go watch Caddyshack. It's the animal that Bill Murray is constantly trying to kill. (laughs) And my advisor quite literally gave me a copy of Caddyshack and said, go watch this. It'll tell you everything you need to know about catching gophers. Three big gobs of greasy granite gopher guts. How about a nice cool drink? Varmints, scum, slime, menace to the golfing industry. This was both an enormous disappointment for Sanjan and a formidable challenge. Here he was, a brown-skinned man with a foreign accent, having to travel all over California's Central Valley to trap gophers on private farmland. I'd have to go to farms, knock on the door and ask them, for permission to go catch gophers. And I came up with lots of tricks to sort of explain to them what I was trying to do and also just give myself permission to be on their land. So I got myself a pickup truck. I got myself an Australian shepherd that gave me some sense of cover when I would drive up to people I didn't know and knock on their door looking like the way I look and saying, do you mind if I like pot around your property with all these traps? I never got a rejection. I always got invited to do this, partly because I think they were so amazed that I was there to catch gophers, something like virtually every farmer wants to get rid of, that I was willing to go catch, you know, dozens and dozens of them and get them off their land. I have to admit, I didn't always tell them that, you know, it was a catch and release study, so I'd come back at night and release these things (laughs) back on the land. (laughs) But, you know, what happened is over time, I got to know some of these folks, And they got to take me around and show me their land. So when I would show up there, it would be like, why don't you jump into my truck and we'll drive around and I'll show you where the places are, where these gophers live. Or do you want to come in and have a coffee? And it was the only chance that someone who had grown up in Asia and in Africa, who had been surrounded by wildlife, who in their mind had people like David Attenborough and Gerald Durrell as my models, or even Jane Goodall, models of conservation for me, see another side of the world and another side of communities, particularly in the United States, that I would never have had the chance to to ever experience if I had ended up studying cheetahs in Africa, which was my original plan. And it's weird because this grand disappointment in my grad school days proved to be the most enduring lesson that keeps giving and giving and giving. That lesson came down to a fundamental difference in how the farmers and Sanjan related to the land. They saw it as a resource that allowed them to make a living. He saw it as a home for the wonders of nature. When they would talk about what they were seeing, it was always this language of value. They would use words that 
or about the soil or about the grass or about the water, about the rains or about the frost. Whereas for me, when I would describe their land, I would always describe it with a language of love. Oh, did you notice there were whippoorwills this evening? Or look at all the wildflowers down below, the poppies in, in the golden poppies in California. So I would come at it from a language of love and they were always talking to me in a, in a language of value. Now, when, in that moment, that was completely lost to me. I was just trying to catch these gophers and get off the land and get on with my PhD. But over time, I've, I realized how close we were and yet how far apart we were because of our values, systems, and our language was just not coinciding. Through his travels and his work with Conservation International, Sanjin has come to understand that communities around the world often speak about wild places in terms of their value, but that under that, there might be something that is actually close to what a nature nerd like him might call love. He experienced this starkly some years ago while filming for a PBS series called Earth, A New Wild. For one episode, they went to the Sunderbans Mangrove Swamp Forest in Bangladesh along the Bay of Bengal. The Sunderbans are home to lots of birds and animals, but also home to tigers. And the Sundarban tigers really do have a reputation for killing people, for being man-eaters. In the Sundarbans, there is a reasonable chance that you could get killed by a tiger. So how reasonable? In the year I was there, over 50 people were killed because of tigers. So it's a real present danger. Sanjan wanted to hear from the people living in the Sundarbans what it was like to exist alongside such dangerous predators on a daily basis and why they continued to tolerate the tigers instead of attempting to rid their land of the big cats. But first, reaching villages in the region meant hiring a boat and navigating an entirely different type of risk that he hadn't planned for. We were coming up to a community, but the tide had gone out. And these are huge flats, so they're like kilometers of tide that goes out. And the boat just got stranded. And so instead of waiting for the tide to come back in and lift the boat, we decided, well, we can see the land out there. It's maybe a kilometer away. Why don't we just walk across this mud flat? So we got out and we started trudging towards this community that's in there somewhere. And the initial going was easy. And then it started getting harder and harder as we started sinking deeper and deeper into the mud. You look back and the boat is now a tiny speck still out there and the land is, seems just as far away, and you're now in, in knee-deep mud. And every step you take, the mud gets deeper and deeper, until we found all of us at least at waist-deep mud, barely able to sort of take a step. So every step you take was just arduous. And then we realize that the tide is now coming in. Some of us get to shore, get to, get to actually dry land. I am one of the last because I've actually lingered to take photos. And I've also lingered with the only guy who has a gun, which is the forest ranger. And he has a gun because he's there to protect us from tigers. And he is really struggling. And the water's coming in, the water's coming in. It's now up to his chest and the guy is full on panicking. In my mind, I had this clear sense that someone was going to die. And it really hit me when he took his gun and handed it to me. He took his cell phone and then he took his cigarettes, which were in his top pocket. 
and handed it to me. And that, that something about the act of giving me those cigarettes, I was like, this guy is a goner. I managed to make it, sort of crawl onto shore. I get some water, I go back to him. Now we've made a long sort of rope from pants and belts and some palm fronds we saw on the, on the beach. So we've got like 30 meters of makeshift rope. And I sort of crawl back to him on my belly, give him some water, tell him to calm down, tell him to like just lower his pressure. And then we slowly, slowly, slowly start pulling him out. This guy couldn't swim. So if that water had gone up another foot, that, that would have been it. And within an hour, it had, it, had, it had reached that mark. After the group recovered from the rescue, they entered the village. Rasanjan was introduced to a man who had lost his father to a tiger attack. And I would say he was probably 30, 35 years old. And he'd gone out with his father to forage in the forest, in this mangrove forest. They'd taken their cows. So they go into these little forest clearings and cut grass for the cows. And he had gone and he was cutting grass. His father was behind him. His father had asked him for, I think, a cigarette or something to take a break. He turned back to his task. He heard a sound, turned around, and a tiger had come out and grabbed his father by the neck. And he took his sickle that he was using to cut the grass and he attacked the tiger with it. He says he struck it twice. The tiger eventually drops his father and and flees. He brings his father onto this little boat that he has and his father's on his lap and he bleeds out in the boat on his lap. The guy tells me the story with some emotion and some intensity. And then we get to this important part where I said, you know, what, what happened to this tiger? You know, what do you do with this tiger? What do you think about tigers? I can't actually remember how I phrased it because the question wasn't important. The answer was unbelievable. This guy had absolutely no malice for this tiger. His straightforward answer was, the tiger's there to protect the forest. Without the tiger, we would not have this forest. The tiger was just doing what the tiger was doing. And it was this an unbelievable answer coming from him, coming from a guy in a village, you know, a very simple life, who had lost his father right in front of him to a wild animal. I don't think I would have that sort of resilience. And yet I see that resilience all the time with people who live close to nature, in proximity with nature, with great dependence on nature. Not that they want to get attacked by a tiger, not that they won't defend themselves from a tiger. He had no problem attacking the tiger, even trying to kill the tiger in that moment. But this understanding, this acceptance that life is interconnected, that the tiger is part of that ecosystem, my words, and that it is the protector, it is the defender of that forest. And without the tiger, he felt people would be all over that forest and that forest would ultimately be gone. And yet that forest is what protects his village, it provides him with food, it provides him with fish and all these other things. So for him, the forest protects him, the tiger protects the forest, the tiger was doing what the tiger was doing. To Sanjan, this demonstrated a profoundly different understanding of nature than what you typically encounter in the United States or other Western cultures. A black bear shows up on the edge of Los Angeles and they're going to shoot that thing because it is seen as that bear is coming into our territory rather than we're going into theirs. It's seen as humans are separate from nature. Nature needs to be over there in that protected area, in that forest, in that national park, behind the fence, on the other side of the wall. 
Whereas for so many of the communities that I've had the privilege of working with, it is much more fluid. They are part of nature. We're protecting nature to protect ourselves. Those ideas that we are a part of nature and that we protect it to protect ourselves drive Sanjan's work today at Conservation International. As he sees it, the mistake that Western scientists and environmentalists have made in viewing human places and wild places as separate helps explain why they've so often failed to convince communities who know otherwise to adopt their ideas of what it means to take care of the earth. I think for so long, so many of us well-meaning people who have cared deeply about non-human life, particularly in tropical systems, in what some might call the developing world, have approached this with urgency, which is needed, but with the lack of sensory feel for what it is they were really trying to do. And in that, we've created a system that, frankly, is colonial, it's racist, it's certainly prejudiced, it's short-sighted. It will never, never stand the test of time if you don't have the support of those communities. Not even just support of the community, that if it's not their idea and their way. That is this journey that I've been on. When I was in the Central Valley of California, the exposure that I had to this community from what I had a romantic vision of what my future was going to look like to the reality was a lesson that has stayed with me my entire life. In Namibia, watching that egg in the middle of a national park with my Western construct of what a park is and how to leave everything alone. And then this duality, this how can two communities see the same thing with two such different eyes and realizing that their eye is a lot more valid than mine because on the day I get on that plane and fly back, they're the ones who are going to be solving the problem of the egg in the desert. And then I meet a man who's lost his father to a tiger in a swamp that he is willing to admit its existence of and celebrate its existence of because he understands it is the defender of that forest. We are in the process of turning the narrative of conservation, how, why we save the planet on its head. And I think in doing that is going to be the opportunity for us to move from a niche hobby, something on the side, to something that is mainstream, that is embraced, that is finally at the scale that we need to actually solve the problem at hand. M. Sanjan is the CEO of Conservation International. You can learn more about their work at conservation.org. Sanjan's new television series with PBS is Life at the Waterhole. It premieres on May 19th. This episode was produced by me, Michael Roberts. Music for the Wildfile series is by Louis Weeks. This episode was brought to you by the all-new 2021 Ford Bronco Sport, a 4x4 SUV with seven available GOAT modes that enable it to go over any type of terrain. Learn more at Ford.com slash Bronco.